0: We're going to open this series in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians, chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 15, looking at the foundational building blocks of prayer that Paul gave to us. Beginning in verse 15, we'll read this amazing prayer. And next week, we'll be in my favorite prayer, I think, of all of Paul's prayers, although in studying this, I walk away from every week's session of study saying, this has got to be the most amazing thing I've ever read. And then the next week, this has got to be the most amazing thing I've ever read. And then the next week, this has got to be the most amazing thing I've ever read. You get the idea. Verse 15, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read the word of the Lord and herald it as such, and then pray that God would grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats and we'll pray. we humble our hearts before you because when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. These men and women have made a sacrifice this morning. They come, Lord, seeking. No one has been motivated to come into this place simply to oppose, to oppose you and your will or to to rage against you, all of us have gathered here in this place to hear from you. And so we humble our hearts before you this morning as a church. We ask that the very life of our church, the very air in our lungs would be prayer. And I know, Lord, for us as Christians, these sermons, these exhortations to prayer can become so condemning. May the church understand that you, Jesus, prayed perfectly for us, and so we can pray freely and joyfully and expectantly in your acceptance and grace. This morning, God, we ask now that your spirit would be our teacher and that you would grant us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. You are our greatest need, and so we exalt you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I prayed, a series of sermons on prayers can be punishing for some people. (laughs) All it takes is this question. How's your prayer life? And if you've been a Christian for any more than two weeks, you find your shoulders slumping a little bit, kind of looking away, downcast eyes. My prayer life is not what I think it is should be. And that's not the purpose of these sermons. They're not to punish you or condemn you. In fact, these sermons are going to be what I consider the building blocks of a healthy prayer life. And these sessions are not going to be based on a how to pray, but rather why do we pray and what do we primarily pray as Christians. J.I. Packer has some helpful words on this contrasting between rather than how to pray sessions, what to pray, and why we pray sessions. He says, and this is a rather lengthy quote, I start, says Packer, with the truism that each Christian's prayer life has in it common factors about which one can generalize and also uniquenesses which no other Christian's prayer life will quite match. You are you, and I am I. And we must each find our own way to God. And there is no recipe for prayer that can work for us like a handyman's do-it-yourself manual or a cookbook where the claim is that if you follow the instructions, you can't go wrong. Praying is not like carpentry or cookery. It is the active exercise of a personal relationship, a kind of friendship with the living God and his son, Jesus Christ. And the way it goes is more under divine control than ours. Books on praying, like marriage manuals, are not to be treated with slavish superstition, as if perfection of technique is the answer to all difficulties. Their purpose, rather, is to suggest things to try. But as in other close relationships, so in prayer. You have to find out by trial and error what is right for you, and you learn to pray by praying. Some of us talk more, others less. Some are constantly vocal. Others cultivate silence before God as their way of adoration. Some slip into tongues. Others make a point of not slipping into it. Yet we may all be praying as God means us to do. The only rules are stay within biblical guidelines and within those guidelines, pray as you can and don't try to pray as you can't. Now, the exclamation point on this beginning sermon this morning around why we pray and what to pray is a reminder. Jesus prayed perfectly for you. I think that sometimes as Christians, we can become confused and we can believe the lie as we talked about all through Galatians that we're saved by Jesus' life, death, and burial and resurrection plus how much we pray and how well we pray and how often we pray and how many answers we receive to our prayers. And that's simply not the case. We are not saved by how much we pray or the way in which we pray or the answers we receive to our prayers. We pray because Jesus prayed perfectly for us And we pray because Jesus was separated from the Father so that we'll never be separated from the Father. And so that leads us to a question. What is our greatest need? What is your greatest need this morning? Because we're all praying for something. All of us have some need, some desire, some longing that we're asking God to meet, asking God to provide for. And we might answer the question, what is our greatest need by highlighting that need, that longing, that desire. But the reality is our greatest need in any given moment with any given desire, with any expectation Our greatest need is simply to know God. Don Carson, in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, from which I got the idea for this sermon series a number of years ago, he asks the same question, what is the greatest need of Western Christendom? And he goes through these different needs that he thinks we might have. There's the need for generosity. There's the need for greater evangelism. There's the need for marital purity within the church. There's all these things, but he sums up all of that by saying all of those are symptomatic of the actual greatest need that we have in the church today and that is greater knowledge of God. Super simple, straight up, easy to understand. Your greatest need, my greatest need right now in this moment is to know God. Carson says, the one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We simply need to know God better. Now fundamentally, and this is where we start the rest of our sermons from, fundamentally, prayer is not about getting something from God. Prayer is about getting to know God. That is the fundamental basis. That is the driving force of any time we bow our heads, fold our hands, raise our hands, lift our eyes, fall silent, speak loudly, praise and petition, all of those things have at their foundation the fundamental purpose of prayer is to know God, to be in relationship with God, to hear from Him, not necessarily to get from Him. Now make no mistake about it, as we'll talk about in this sermon series, our prayers and our petitions are heard by God and influence him. They affect him. He responds to our prayers. He provides through our prayers. He wants to answer our prayers. He expects us to expect him to be in the midst of our prayers. But fundamentally, the baseline reality of the way we should be thinking about prayers as Christians is this is to know God. And I would argue, along with many other New Testament scholars and pastors, that our anemia in prayer, that, that, that constant condemnation in our heart, when the question is asked, how is your prayer life, and we all slump over, Our prayer lives are not where they ought to be because we begin our prayer prayer lives in the base, in the fundamental place of God's gonna give me something and then he doesn't and so then we don't pray. Lots of heads nodding at that one. That's right, Danny. I know, me too. I'm in the same boat with you. But when we fundamentally begin to begin our prayers from this baseline, from this place of I'm entering into a relationship moment with my God who is alive, who responds to me perfectly, and I'm going to know him in the midst of my talking to him, it infuses our prayers with a new passion, a new fire, and a new faith. The symptoms of not knowing God, sexual impurity in the church, lack of generosity, apathy, lack of zeal in evangelism, those are all great needs in Western Christendom, and I would... Propose that those are great needs in our personal lives. But they only are transformed. We only become zealous for evangelism. We only become ridiculously generous. We only become pure in our sexuality and in our purposes when we know a holy God who is generous and cares for us and loves us. And so our greatest need is knowing God. It's not only Don Carson, the scholars, and Pastor Danny who say our greatest need is knowing God the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote the Bible, this is what he prays. This has fascinated me as I've meditated on this for years now. You're hard-pressed to go through the New Testament and find Paul getting on his face and praying, oh God, please provide for the churches. They need money. And you're hard-pressed to find any prayer of the Apostle Paul where he gets on his face and says, oh God, make them zealous to live on mission and reach the lost. You don't don't find it. Paul doesn't pray that way in the New Testament. You don't find places in the New Testament where Paul gets on his face and prays, oh God, please make the suffering stop. Make their circumstances different so that everything will be peachy keen in Jesus' name. What you see Paul praying over and over. Paul's opening prayers, Paul's fundamental prayers, Paul's foundational prayers are, God, help the church to know you. God, they need to know you. I pray they would know you. And that is what Paul opens up with. Paul prays here in Ephesians chapter one, first and foremost, for the knowledge of God. And what we want to start with this morning is understanding that, God's knowledge, the knowledge of God, is actually a gift that comes from God himself. We cannot know God apart from God granting us knowledge of himself. Notice what Paul prays there. If you skip down with me to verse 17, he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, and so now he's asking God to give to the church a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul's opening fundamental prayer is that the God who wants us to know him (coughs) would grant knowledge of himself to us. Let's talk about this here for a little bit. First by saying, our primary prayer on any given day, in any given moment, sitting in the middle of a sermon, our primary prayer, with all the circumstances that we're facing, all the troubles that are hounding us down, all the needs that we have, our primary prayer should start this way. God, Please reveal yourself to me in the midst of this. That's where it starts. That's where real prayer starts. That's where real communion starts. God, in the midst of all this, before I ask you to provide or fix or change or transform or deliver, please give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Please reveal knowledge of yourself to me. Now, God does this. He reveals himself to us autobiographically. He writes about himself to reveal himself to us, and then he reveals himself both objectively and subjectively. God reveals himself in outside things, namely creation and the scriptures, and God reveals himself to us inwardly, subjectively, by his Holy Spirit as he grants us wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of himself. And we cannot know God apart from him revealing himself to us in both fashions equally in a room like this with this many people in here we're gonna have a whole swath of personalities and Some are going to lean towards knowing God subjectively by their feelings the way that their emotions guide them the way that their intuition tells them he is and some are gonna know God objectively as a data set a series of propositions and truths that he has spoken to us objectively But to know God truly, he has to reveal himself to us both objectively and subjectively. Think with me about Barack Obama, our current president. We can know him objectively, but we don't really know him intimately and personally unless we have autobiographical, emotional revelation from Barack Obama himself. We can know that he's the president. We can know where he lives. We can know relatively what his job is. We can know what he says, but we can't know his emotions, his deep desires, his inner longings. But Michelle does. Why does Michelle, his wife? She's close to him. She has interpersonal relationships with him where he reveals his deepest desires, his longings, and his emotions. There's a deeper intimate knowledge that comes in that autobiographical revelation that is given as the person actually shares about themselves. So we need to know God objectively. We need to know God subjectively, and he reveals himself through the Holy Spirit. And what I want you guys to understand this morning is that humanity's knowledge of God, your knowledge of God, my knowledge of God, is either false if we don't have both of these forms of relationship with him, or it falls short. Let's talk about first why it may be false. This is primarily for those who want to know God only by their feelings. You may have been brought here by a friend and be investigating Christianity and I want to propose a challenge to you if you think this way. Our culture says God is whoever I feel like he is. I know who God is because I feel this way about him. I feel like he thinks this. I feel like he says this. I feel like he desires that. It's all this subjective, kind of emotional, inward sense and intuition of who God is. That's how our culture says we are to know God. And many Christians can fall prey to simply knowing God that way. But let me give you an illustration of how dangerous that can be. Imagine my wife, Alexis. If one morning I woke up and I said, you know, I feel that my wife is this type of person. She's a high-risk taker, which means for our date this Friday night, I feel like she would really enjoy bungee jumping. And after bungee jumping, I feel like my wife's favorite movies are Rambo and Terminator 1. (laughs) And I go to her and I say to her, Hey, babe, I got a great date night for us. We're going to go bungee jumping and then we're going to go watch Terminator. And she looks at me and she says, That's not me. I don't like those things. I'm not a high-risk taker. I'm not gonna watch Terminator with you. We're gonna watch The Notebook. And I'm like, no, I feel like, I feel like you like Terminator better than Notebook, <laughs> The Notebook. And she says, no, you're wrong about me. Listen to me, I'm telling you who I am. I'm speaking to you. I'm autobiographically revealing myself to you. But our culture goes on, and I think for some in this room, we read the objective text of scripture, a holy God who is other than ourselves, And some of us are hard-pressed to just submit to what God has revealed about himself objectively. To listen to what he says about himself autobiographically as he reveals himself saying, this is who I am in the scriptures. Outside of your feelings, this is who I am. I state this about myself, and to know me is to know me objectively in this way. But number two, number two, if we yield, we can yield to the objective knowing of God And not be false but our knowledge of him can still fall short how so we can have outward objective knowledge of God that is right and true and yet not have that interpersonal mysterious miraculous hard to describe real relational knowledge with him I've said this before in the church I'm gravely concerned that in the Western church, we are suffering from the only thing I can describe it as is theological gluttony. What I mean by that is we have more podcasts, more sermons, more seminary availability, more documents, more books than any portion of the church has ever had in her entire history and we can cerebrally feed ourselves data and systematics and biblical theology and big theological words, and we can say, I know who God is. He is a redeemer, he is a justifier, he is an adopter, he is a lover, he is a punisher, he is wrath-filled, he is loving, he is merciful. You see, I have all these podcasts and sermons and books and classes that I've taken, and it can all be stuck up here in our head and never get down deep to that Spirit of wisdom and revelation that moves us and transforms us and shapes us and changes us and causes us to say And I'm in a real vibrant living relationship This God this Redeemer this justifier this adopter this wrath-filled merciful loving God Is my friend he's my lover my justifier my Redeemer more than just in my head deeply way down into my heart And so the church herself, she can fall short of actually knowing God apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts and revealing ourselves or revealing himself to us. And that's why we start our times of theological study like in gospel leadership. That's why we start our times of sermons. That's why we start our times of Bible study and prayer and reading and listening to podcasts. We start our time by saying, God the Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to me. Speak to me. And it may be that one or two of you in here this morning are saying, is that me? Do I just have cerebral knowledge of God? Welcome to relationship with the living God. That's him whispering. That's him prodding your heart saying, come a little closer. Let me take all that cerebral theology that you have and let it open up your heart to reveal me that you would know me in intimacy and in depth. So what are we to do? How are we to find this balance? We're to pray for enlightenment. Notice there in verse 18, Paul says, having the high eyes of your hearts enlightened. What Paul is saying there is that the Holy Spirit through prayer has to both objectively through the scriptures, this is who God is, and subjectively through that internal mysterious working of that sense and intuition and emotion, God has to illuminate our hearts. Now, the heart for the ancient Hebrew was not just the beating organ in our chest. It was the center of their being. And Paul is saying, praying for the Spirit to give you wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, praying that our hearts would be enlightened, that where there is darkness because we are refusing to bow to the objective revelation of God, His Word and His creation— that light would come into the very center of your being. And you would wake up one morning and you would look at an objective sunrise and go, oh, something big made that. Paul is praying that light would come into your hearts as you open up John three sixteen, and it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not be condemned but have eternal life that God the Holy Spirit would come in through that objective word of him revealing himself in Jesus, light would shine into the darkness of your heart. Paul is praying that the Spirit would come in, and not only would you read the objective words of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, but you would find your heart by the Holy Spirit opened up, and you would just stand in awe of it, saying, and he did this for me. And the spirit would respond by whispering so deep in the recesses of your soul, in the darkest nooks and crannies of who you are, shining light saying, see, I did this for you. Know me, I'm in love with you. I'm all about you, I'm only for you. And you would have that subjective internal sense, the enlightening and the illuminating of our inner being not just our minds, but our whole essence, the whole volition of our being transformed and light shining ever more progressively to where sunrises and smiles on babies' faces melt us in the knowledge of God, to where our sessions in sermons and scripture reading, we find ourselves saying, I love you, I adore you, I worship you. Our moments of prayer Whether they are dry like the desert sands or deluged like a rainforest, we find ourselves in faith saying, reveal yourself to me. It is your greatest need, Christian. Now, in this moment, your greatest need is to know him in these ways. So like Paul, let's follow suit. Let's pray as a church in the midst of all the needs that we have as a community of faith, I had this vision a number of months ago. Not a vision, not like a weird like out there vision, but like, you know, one of those imagination things. And then I saw our church. And it was like our church was a big chest. And it was just breathing. And that breathing was our prayers. And our prayer was centered in all of us breathing in, God, I want to know you an entire community of people breathing in the life of God. God, I want to know you. Now, as we move through the rest of this passage, Paul highlights and he illuminates three gifts that God has already given to us. Remember what I said at the beginning. Paul isn't here praying, Lord, please provide for them. Lord, please protect them. Please give to them. Paul here prays that you and I would know what we've already been given completely and totally and entirely in God. So this first thing that he says we're to pray to know is to pray to know our hope, our hope. Notice what he says there in the latter half of verse 18. I pray that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Hope in the Bible is not a, oh boy, I hope the Seahawks win this afternoon, which I really do hope they win. I mean, we're playing Dallas, so it's not a sure thing, right? Hope in the world is like not a sure thing, but hope in the Bible is, this is for sure. It's the hope that we have that's unchanging, it's settled, and Paul here prays, your greatest need is to know God objectively and subjectively by the grace of the Spirit through the Scriptures, and then I want The church to know the hope, the sure, unchanging, steadfast anchor of hope that they have in Jesus. Hope is the source of our strength, our perseverance, our joy, and hope is actually the motivation for why we do what we do. If the teachings of the Bible and the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus are not true, you guys all realize this is dumb, right? Like, this is ridiculous for us to get up here every Sunday morning, give up our time, give up our effort to gather around this book that means nothing. But if this is true and Jesus is alive, that is our source of strength and perseverance and joy. And Paul prays, you've already been given all the hope you need in the resurrection. You've been given all the strength, all the joy, all the perseverance, all the motivation you need in this sure hope, and I pray by the Holy Spirit that you would know it objectively, that you would know it subjectively. Sproul, R.C. Sproul says, there is an attempt in our day to replace the emphasis in Christianity upon personal salvation and redemption with an accent on this world, this life, and our humanitarian lifestyle. Very little attention is given to a future hope but the source of power to live out that high ethic and to care for the people who are around us in this world to really have compassion for man as man is rooted and grounded in the fact that man has a future destiny that is so rich and so wonderful. By knowing the hope that is set before them, believers are motivated by the certainty that their work in this world and their care for people in the here and now is not in vain. Three facets of this multifaceted diamond of hope that I wanted to highlight for us this morning, literally millions of facets of hope that we can meditate on, that we have been given fully through the resurrection of Jesus. Hope number one, God is working all things for our good. Now the reason I say that your greatest need this morning isn't for God to fix your circumstances, it's for you to know God, is this verse. Do you guys realize that if we actually believed this verse, Romans chapter eight, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, that if we actually knew that objectively, we read it, there it is, but then we prayed it in subjectively, God is working this for good, you realize you would not have any anxiety well, Danny, that's ridiculous. No, that's, that's, what, that's what this is saying. Well, Danny, I have to worry about this. Well, no, you need to know the hope to which you've been called, that God is working this for good. Well, Danny, he's got to fix this. Well, believe you me, whenever I bow down to the, God, you've got to fix this, before I pray, Lord, let me know the hope that I have in you. I live my days in anxiety and fear and depression and discouragement. Church, Look at this. Think about this. Imagine this week, walking through this week, meditating first on God, show me yourself, you're with me. And then reveal to me the hope that I have in you, sure, steadfast, and let it melt the anxieties and the fear and the depression because you are working this for good. I look at what's happening in my life and the hope is you are working this for good. Number two though, God is with us through everything Right before Jesus ascended in Matthew 28, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, the author of Hebrews would say, I never leave you nor forsake you. Our hope is not only future, our hope is present. I think for some of you, you may be in a season of prayer and your prayer begins with, God, where are you? And Paul is praying, and I'm praying, and we're praying for each other together this morning in the midst of this sermon, that you would know he is present with you in the midst of the desert, dry sand. In the midst of the suffering, God is with you, and in you, and through you, and for you, and he prays that you would know that. And third, we have this sure hope, and we're to pray to know our hope, because God is sure to raise us from the dead. We can't lose. Romans chapter eight. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If we believe that God is working all things for good right now in our lives, we believe that God has not left us because he punished his son so he would never leave us and he is present with us in this moment. And we come to know, not just objectively, but subjectively, that we may lose our health, our wealth, our family, our reputation, our place in society. We may lose it all and go into a grave. But if we actually know this hope, we lose it all with a smile on our face. I have this sure hope that if I lose everything, including my life, I'm going to rise from the dead which leads us to our next point of knowing and knowing God in the midst of all this, our hope. But then Paul says we're also to know our glorious riches in the inheritance of the saints. We pick up there in verse 17, 18, somewhere in that area, verse 18, the latter half. He says, I pray that you would know what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. We are to pray to know what we are going to gain in God, what we've gained in each other, and God's riches in us. Why do I put those three facets up there? Paul purposefully, I believe, uses some ambiguous Greek in this passage here. And translators have been troubled by which way to translate it. They're unsure if they should emphasize that our glorious riches are what God is going to give to us as an inheritance, that could be the case. Or is Paul saying, we are the glorious riches that God is going to inherit. And I believe Paul is saying, three things in the midst of this passage. Paul is praying that we would know our inheritance that we are going to be given, that future hope that nothing will be lost. Imagine with me for just a moment here, if you receive a phone call tomorrow morning, just play along with the game, this will be fun. And on the other end of the line, somebody with a foreign accent, an accent that you don't quite recognize, says, we've been doing genealogical research, we've run DNA tests, and it's sure, you're the long-lost ancestor of an ancient king. And when this particular person dies in this lineage, in this obscure land far, far away, you're the inheritor. You're going to inherit a chain of islands with five-star hotels on them, all of them yours. And multi-million dollars worth of jewels and gems and position in these islands as well. You are now the grand puba of this chain of islands. Just think about this phone call for just a moment. Just play along, my friends. Think about it in reality. You get the phone call tomorrow morning. Do you go to work with a frown on your face? Oh, the job, the boss, the life. (laughs) Do you look at the neighbor with the house, the car? Do you look at the things that you so wish you had with a grumpiness? After you hang up the phone, do you say, I just inherited a chain of islands. They're gonna call me Grand (laughs) Poobah. I wish I had a better car. My life is over. No, no. You see, our longings aren't met here. Our longings, our desires are twisted and deformed to long for here, but they don't belong here. And Paul says, you know your greatest need? You gotta know God. You've got to know the hope that he's called you to that is sure and steadfast. And you've got to know the ridiculous riches which you will inherit the moment you leave this twinkling of an eye life. Riches beyond imagination. When we get to chapter 3 next week, Paul says he does far beyond what we could ever think or imagine. So all I could imagine was being called Grand Puba and inheriting a chain of islands somewhere in the South Pacific. Paul says, Danny, it will be beyond your imagination. In another passage, he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. We are to pray daily, Lord, show me what will be mine that I might release everything in this life unto you. The reason we cling so tightly to, hold on to so desperately, long for so deeply things in this world is because we have yet to actually know objectively and know subjectively by a spirit of wisdom and revelation this glorious rich inheritance. Beyond that, though, Paul makes this unique little statement here where he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You see, an inheritance goes to a family, which means the person sitting next to you and you sitting next to them, you're going to inherit each other, no longer separated from each other. We are each other's inheritance. And then finally, maybe most importantly in my mind for the Western church, Paul ambiguously here could be saying that we are to know that we are God's rich inheritance. I think God gets the shabby end of the deal on this. <laughs> but God looks at you and he says, you are my treasure. You are my value. You are worth to me. And to know that is to melt the soul. It's to settle the heart. It's to, it's to set us in right place with God so that we can go through our week this week saying, I have inherited brothers and sisters. I'm no longer separated by shame. I have glorious riches and inheritance that are coming my way that are beyond my imagination. I have a hope that is sure and steadfast and secure regardless of the way I pray or don't pray. So Lord, reveal yourself to me and I'm your treasure? Yeah, I'm your treasure. How do you know that? Look what he paid for you he had to become one with us and sacrifice his own son as a payment for us, to buy us, to purchase us, to make us his own, to adopt us. Meditate on that, it will melt you, it will transform you, it will settle your soul. You'll be able to untangle your fingers a little bit more from this world and its ways as you meditate and know these things, pray to know these things. And then finally this morning, we're to pray to know his power, and this is what we close with to go to communion. Pray to know his power. Paul here, like any good preacher, piles up these seemingly superfluous adjectives here. In in verse 19 he says, I want the church to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. The Greek, the Greek there is, it's hilarious. It's hyperbalo megathos autodynamos, dynamos from which we get our words hyper mega dynamite. I want the church to know that they believe, and as they believe, there is hyper mega dynamite working in their lives. Paul prays that we would know that the power that is at work in you right now, the power that's going to sustain you unto receiving that great inheritance, the power that will prove to you that you are his inheritance, The the, the power that secures your steadfast hope that Paul prays you would know, the power that reveals to you knowledge of God is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that establishes his rule over all things, heaven and earth, angels, demons, and human beings in this age and in the age to come. So he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul is praying that we know this immeasurable power, and what I want to remind you of this morning, guys, as we get ready to go to communion is this. When we hear those words, hyper-mega-dynamite, we automatically think like Western Christianers. What I mean by that is, we think when we go to prayer, Lord, show me your hyper-mega-dynamite in my life. And we expect fireworks to go off in our lives. We expect explosions to happen around us. We expect an angelic chorus to open up in the world all around us. But instead, what Paul is trying to remind us of is that this this hyper-mega-dynamite comes in a backwards way. Do you guys remember the Gospel of Mark? that the kingdom of God is backwards and so the hyper mega dynamite that God is working in our lives his immeasurable power towards us it first comes in weakness in circumstances that are troubling and in the cross God's hyper mega dynamite is more like a still small whisper that just doesn't stop speaking God's hyper mega dynamite is manifested in the midst of your current conundrum. The conundrum, the problem, is the place where God manifests his power. The the cross has to come before the resurrection, emptiness has to be before you can be made full. We have to bow entirely, the entirety of our heart, before Jesus can truly reign over us. And so the power that we're praying to know is not necessarily, though as we will talk about in future sermons, it is not necessarily, oh Lord, change this, oh Lord, provide for this. It is, I want to know the power of Jesus going into his grave and dying and resurrecting. I want to know how to be sustained in the midst of this suffering, trusting that I'll be raised. I want to know, as Paul would pray, how can I lack, how can I still sing the glory of God and praise Him in the midst of lack and hunger, or in the midst of abundance and wealth? It's a backwards, upside-down way of thinking about power. We're to pray to know the power that is in the toddler who's running around, skipping and dancing, and getting in trouble with her mom right after this church service. We're to pray to know the power of the brother or the sister who is without home and impoverished right now. We're to pray to know the power of the person who's laying on a sickbed, diseased and has not yet seen healing. There's power there that is immeasurable and great because of an inheritance that we are God's inheritance, that we will inherit from God, and that hope is ours, and Paul prays this morning, that we would know it, that we would know it. Will, if you'd come on up. Communion is a time where we gather to remember and to know God. This morning as we prepare to partake of communion, I wanna encourage us as a church to make this meditation our own. And let's just begin, as we prepare to take communion together, By praying corporately, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. I have the objective scriptures in my head, but bring them into my heart. This morning, as you hold the communion bread, and what we do here at Taproot is there'll be people right up here in the front, and you can come forward and dip bread into the wine or into the grape juice. As we hold those emblems of his body and his blood, pray, Lord, I want to see the hope in this. And I want you to imagine in that place how hopeless, how hopeless do you think the original disciples were? (laughs) Their whole world was over. Their leader and their their Savior was dead. He had been judged a criminal and he was gone. But they, they steadfastly trusted and Jesus revealed himself to them. And so this morning in the midst of communion, hold the bread, hold the cup, Partake together, praying, Lord, reveal yourself to me in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my circumstances. Breathe in this hope. Breathe in this knowledge of you. If you're not a Christian this morning, you can become a Christian. Maybe this morning you're realizing that you've trusted in a lot of theology but never really opened your heart to Jesus himself. Like you've got a whole lot of Bible in your head and you've got a whole lot of theology and you can quote all sorts of theologians, but that heart opening. Well, Danny, how do I know if that's happened? Romans chapter eight says, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And if any one of us this morning finds ourselves saying, am I a child? Just pray, Lord, I wanna receive you. And then mark that down as an objective moment outside of yourself where you by faith said, I received him, I came to know him this day. And let the subjective work of the Holy Spirit begin to take over in your life. If somebody would grab the lights for us this morning, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing to Jesus, partake of communion. Father, we humble our hearts before you now and pray to know you. Thank you that the knowledge of you comes from you. And so we ask, God, that you would grant us the revelation of yourself. I pray that there would be a stillness in our hearts and a hopefulness that you have birthed through the words that you've given us in the pages of scripture. I pray, Father, that we would know the inheritance that's ours, that we would know the infinite riches that you have granted to us in Jesus, in each other. And God, I pray as we partake of communion this morning that we would be given that internal subjective sense that we are your treasure together. Us as individuals and us as a church here in this room. We are your treasure together. And Lord, I pray that the immeasurable dynamite, the power that raised Jesus from the dead would raise these souls today. I pray you would bring healing. I pray you would bring joy, perseverance, As we sing these songs to you, be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.